Let us pray. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight this evening. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. These Sunday evenings we're looking at the doctrines of God. We've began by considering that God is three persons. There are Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Each person is equal with God. Each person is fully God. And God has revealed himself as Trinity. The next thing we looked at was the the God who is speaks. He's a God who communicates. And the thing that we learned that evening was that the Bible is all about Jesus. We also consider that God makes, that he, that cre- he created everything from nothing. He spoke and the universe was formed at his word. And then we thought about God judges because at the pinnacle of his creation is mankind who deliberately, willfully chose to find the, a gift of God, a forbidden fruit, more, more delicious, more delightful, more desirable than God himself. And then we saw last week that God makes covenants with us We thought about God pursues us through his covenant love. And one of the reasons that God gives covenants or makes his covenants known to us is because he wants us to know that we are loved by God. This evening we're thinking about God becomes the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation is a priceless and pivotal truth of the Christian faith because it goes to the very heart of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Heresies have plagued the people of God through all our long history. In the Old Testament, false prophets spread their poison and in the New Testament, false teachers have polluted the church. Heresy, heresies are not error. There's a world of difference between making a genuine mistake and actually telling something false, willfully, deliberately. Heresies fall into the category of willfully, deliberately choosing to abandon. Heretics are people who have chosen to abandon the truth that God has made plain in his word and teach lies. A modern day example of heresy is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny that Jesus is God. That is heresy. All false teaching, as the Bible makes clear, originates from Satan. The very first temptation, has God said, shows the essence of temptation. Denying or spreading doubts about the goodness and kindness of God. 
all false teaching originates from Satan and seeks to deny or cast doubts in our minds, particularly, in, very particularly, not so much about God in general, and demonstrates with great clarity the person of Christ and he, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus in two ways you'll see Jesus doing this very much it's very clear in Mark's gospel it's very clear in Matthew's gospel it's crystal clear in Mark and crystal clear in John but in two ways the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus as the man who is God and he also then reveals to us Jesus, the man who is God, who dies for his people. The person and the work of Christ are central. So as we prepare our hearts to come around the Lord's table this evening, and as we're getting ready for Christmas, I want us to meditate on John chapter 1.14, which reads, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want us to see with new eyes the wonder, the glory, the magnificence of who Jesus is and to savour him. I want us to behold his glory and savour and adore and enjoy him and what he's done for us and why he did it. Who he is, what he's done and why he did it. I was talking to someone on, on Friday afternoon and we're working through a book together and it's, it, it, it makes us face some harsh realities about our own hearts. And it, it pulls no punches and it, it makes it crystal clear that we are far worse than we can possibly dare to imagine. We are most, more sinful and evil and wicked and vile than we can possibly ever imagine. And at the same time, in Christ, we are more loved and accepted and blessed than we can dare to dream. And we praise God that both of us have not lost the wow of the gospel. And may God grant that we never do. And if, and if you have lost the wonder of the gospel, you need help. You need someone to come alongside you and pray with you and love you and care for you. And if, if you've lost the wow and the wonder of, of the gospel, ask God to give it to you afresh. So as we work through this, I want us to think about the word. And you'll find it as it's introduced, uh, as John begins his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Why does John introduce his gospel with this sentence I think there are two primary reasons why he does so 
The first reason is to connect his readers with the opening verses of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning opens the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John is showing us here, in the beginning, he wants us to connect with God's creation and and connect us with God's redemption in Christ, as we'll come to. That's one of the reasons why I believe he begins his gospel this way. And secondly, because he is an evangelist, he wants to connect his readers with the two dominant cultures of the world of then. There were two massive dominant cultures that dominated the world of that day. Culturally, the Greek culture, it was the Roman Empire, they were the dominant world power, but culturally, this, the Greek worldview was the air they breathed. And we still breathe, by the way, today, the Greek culture, the, the, the worldview of the Greek culture. The Greek philosophers of the day. And the Greek worldview of that day was that there was a rational but impersonal principle by which everything exists. The Greek worldview, you can find, by the way, you find this in the Star Wars thing, the Force. And it, that's, that's classic Greek culture with bells and whistles on it, a.k.a. Hollywood. This impersonal force that is the rational but impersonal principle by which everything exists. Do you know what the Greeks called that impersonal principle? The Logos. John begins his gospel with these words in the beginning was the logos he's deliberately using a word for which the greek philosophers was desperately searching for so by john introducing god as the logos he is stating that the rational logical first cause of everything is the logos the word because he wants the greek cultural culturally saturated readers of his day, he wants them to connect with ultimate reality. You are right that there is a logos, but the logos is a person, not an impersonal force. Secondly, the Jewish worldview, he was also wanting to connect with his Jewish readers because the Jewish worldview was biblically shaped, they had a biblical worldview in that they knew that the creator spoke the universe into existence by his word. And God said, and God said, and God said. They celebrated the Bible as the word of God. It was incredibly important to Jewish people. And by introducing them to God as the word... He is deliberately connecting his readers with the God of the Old Testament, in which God's self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation is through the Word. 
And that would have deeply resonated with them too. So what does God want, what does, sorry, what does John, ultimately God through John, what does God want, us to te- want to teach us about the word? There are three things that we can take straight from the opening verse of John's gospel. Number one, in the beginning was the word. Therefore, the word is an eternal, uncreated being. In the beginning was the Word. Number two, and the Word was with God. Therefore, this eternal, uncreated being is in intimate and loving relationship with God. Just, if you're interested, look at the way that the New Testament particularly uses the word with. With always denotes intimacy and relationship. And and not just intimacy in, in relationship, but delighting in one another's company. David is going to spend the rest of his life with Alison. With denotes intimacy. You are, aren't you? So, the, in the beginning, there are two uncreated beings, John is telling us, the Word and God, and they are with each other, intimately delighting in one another. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Therefore, the only logical conclusion that John wants us to take from this statement is not just that the Word was God's eternal partner, but that the word is God's own self. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that the supreme self-disclosure of God is the word. The writer to the Hebrews opens that up with great clarity in In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Word is the means by which communication happens. If I, just a stupid example, how well do you know me? Well, I'm Bob, I'm one of the leaders of this church. I've just told you something about me. I mean, that's just a trivial example. But if I, if I just walked in and said nothing and didn't even answer your questions, what would you know about me? He's a bit weird. You might think that already. But as people speak about themselves, that's, what we, that's how kids make friends, don't they? That's how children make new friends. They start talking to one another and sharing things together. And so John is telling us The only, we can only know God, God can only be known through the Word. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh. John could not be clearer in this statement. Is it true, this is a theological question for you, is it true that God became flesh. Feel free to say yes or no. Is it 
true, yes. Is it specific enough to say that God became flesh? <coughs> By in, no, it's not. You're quite right. What he's telling us is this uncreated being called the Word, who we know is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. God the Father did not become flesh. God the Holy Spirit did not come become flesh. God the Son became flesh. The Word became flesh. I just want to hover over this for a moment. He does not say that the Word assumed human form. The Greek culture, again back to John's evangelistic um, purposes in the Gospel... The Greek culture taught that their deities were somehow like shapeshifters who could disguise themselves and appear as human beings incognito, but no change to their nature. They stayed as gods, so-called, in disguise. They sort of clothed themselves and looked like human beings, but they weren't really human beings. They were still as they were in their true nature. That was Greek culture. When John says, the word became flesh, he is revealing, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us through John that we are confronted with the most glorious and the most mysterious truths about God that are designed and given so that they lead us to adore him. Let me just make a few comments on the word becoming flesh. The word became flesh. God is not in any way subtracting from himself but adding to himself Jesus has always been fully God that's what we learnt in John chapter 1 verse 1 the word was God this eternal being the second person of the trinity the word, the logos has always been eternally fully God he is the eternal word the son but he has not always been fully human. But he is now. So Jesus will deliberately added to himself a second nature. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son has two natures in one person. Does your brain hurt? He has two natures. He is fully divine nature and fully human nature, flesh, body, in one person. Forever. Now. He added to himself, as I say, a second nature, he, a human body and a human soul, with all that that entails. He experienced 
as the second person who became flesh, he experienced birth as a baby. He experienced growth as a child and as a young man. He experienced pain. He experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He experienced relationships. He experienced love, laughter, joy, tears, work, sleep. The full human experience of life and indeed death was experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ. He bridged the infinite gap between God and mankind by becoming flesh. And when John is telling us the word became flesh, what he's doing is he's confronting the prominent worldviews that we thought about earlier. The Greek worldview, which we still embrace today of Stoicism, the Stoic worldview held that spirit is good, matter is bad, body bad, spirit good. So when suffering comes, according to the Stoic philosophers which we have translated as Brits to stiff upper lip, grin and bear it, worse things happen at sea, stuff. Use the force, Luke. That's Stoic philosophy. That's British stiff upper lipism. When, you get, when, when suffering comes, suck it up, grin and bear it. Because matter is bad, spirit good. The word becoming flesh blows that out of the water. Matter is good, so is spirit. (laughs) It also confronts the Jewish and by extension the Muslim worldview that God is so utterly transcendent it is impossible, it would be impossible for God to become flesh. The word became flesh notice what John goes on to say after that and made his dwelling among us why does John add these words here and made his dwelling among us I believe it's because he's beginning to tell us the story of why the word became flesh to make his dwelling among us literally means to fix his tabernacle among us, to live with us. By telling us this, John is showing us that Jesus was not here for a flying visit. Rather, he was here for the long haul. He was here forever, dwelling among us. This wasn't a flying visit by the so-called Greek gods. Pop down, have a look, and pop back again. By him dwelling among us, He's showing us that he's literally taking up residence with us, made his dwelling among us. Also, by saying this, the the Holy Spirit is wanting to ring bells in his Jewish minds, in the readers of his of of the Jewish uh, readers of his gospel, to pitch his tabernacle amongst us would deeply resonate with the Old Testament tabernacle. 
Because the book of Exodus shows us that God, and we first learned there that he is the I am, which is a huge theme in John's gospel. The I am of the book of Exodus is the God who comes down, he's the God of the bush who comes down to deliver. He's the God of the mountain who comes to demand with the Ten Commandments. And he's the God of the tabernacle who comes to dwell. And the, and the culmination of the feasts that the Lord had commanded his people in the Old Testament to keep and observe, the supreme feast of, was the Feast of Tabernacles. where they live in tents to remind them that God also dwelt in a tent in the Old Testament to lead them by fire and water. They were the symbols of the Old Testament. God led them by a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, then the water from the rock. They were major themes within the Feast of Tabernacles. And John brings that out, particularly in John 7 through 10, is a celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you know what the Jews... The other name that the G, I'm not talking about the Hebrew name for the Feast of Tabernacles. The devout Jew, Jews call the Feast of Tabernacles the season of our joy. The season of our joy. And the Feast of Tabernacles lasts eight days and it celebrated the fire that led them in the wilderness and the water that followed them in the rock. That's why Jesus so emphasizes this. I am the light of the world. He said that during the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the water of life. He said that during the Feast of Tabernacles. Incidentally, there are some very well-respected Bible commentators. One of them is Matthew Henry, and many, many Messianic Jews, Jews, Jews who love Jesus, are of the view that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. He made his dwelling, or he tabernacled, among us. So what is John wanting us to take from this? We've seen that God is only knowable and approachable through the word. And also we've learned that God is accessible, vulnerable, t touchable, killable through the word becoming flesh. And we learn here, we're beginning to learn here at the beginning of John's Gospel that the word becoming flesh is here to change our tears to laughter, our hell to heaven, our death to life. How? Through the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among us, dwelling among us. The tabernacle was the place of intimacy with God. But the only way that you or a sinner in the Old Testament could have intimacy with God was through a blood sacrifice. And John says, in, become, in, in the word becoming flesh and taking up his dwelling among us, we are to see and behold his glory. 
The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory. Which means his beauty. This isn't just true. The doctrine of the incarnation is not just true. It is beautiful. It is stunningly beautiful. And if you don't see the beauty of it, ask God to show you. Not just, I don't want your heads to go, I understand the doctrine of incarnation. I want your hearts to burn because it's so beautiful. We behold his glory, his brightness, his splendor, his worth, his wonder. And he became flesh so that we could see, we could behold, we could contemplate his glory, which incidentally is what we were all made for and what we all long for and what we search for anywhere else apart from in Jesus. I want to talk to you just as we move to conclusion and prepare to come around the Lord's table about the purpose of God's glory being revealed so that we can behold his glory. I do like, by the way, family holidays. Um, And if you really want me to bore you, I can show you holiday snaps from our time in the, the Norfolk coast. I've got them on my phone. The lovely sunset, playing with the kids on the beach, me getting buried etc 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 now that's fine cause, but what they, what they have are treasured memories of something that was enjoyable and delightful I guess we've all got family photos and stuff on our walls mementos, memories of course we do and they're right and proper and we behold the glory of them and they, re- they resonate with us of, a, of the joy we experienced then I've no doubt there'll be photographs of David and Alison you know, looking lovingly into each other's eyes and all the rest of it. And there'll be treasured memories. That is not the purpose of God revealing his glory to us so that we can be temporary spectators of his glory. No, no, no. God's purpose in revealing his glory to us in Jesus is so that we could be transformed by it. To the degree that we see and savour Jesus' glory in him becoming flesh and in dwelling with us and dying for us and rising from the dead for us and reigning over us, reigning over all things and one day returning for us, to the degree that we contemplate that glory, to that degree we are being transformed. The purpose for which God has revealed Jesus' glory is that we may be transformed by it, not just be spectators of it. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and I think these are stunning verses. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is telling us that as we contemplate, meditate, behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus, we are being transformed into his image. 
and experiencing ever-increasing glory. No wonder Moses said, show me now your glory. And for Moses, it was impossible. But because the word became flesh, as the Apostle John tells us, we can behold his glory. That's what you were made for. That's what God longs for you, to behold his glory. Listen to Jesus pray for us as he stood in the shadow of the cross. In John 17, 24, we read these words. This is Jesus praying for us. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have touched on things here that are far beyond our tiny, finite, flawed minds to be able to grasp. We do ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would grant us the presence of the indwelling power of the spirit to contemplate the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us so that we might just adore and praise him and be delighted and satisfied in him and find our joy and freedom in him who is full of grace and truth continue to minister to us now as we sing and then as we're able to come and celebrate around the table of the lord in a moment thank you for speaking to us may your word not fall to the ground but make a real impact in our hearts and lives we pray in jesus name amen christ the lord is risen today.